so in 2019, Reed Martin and I wrote our prequel to the greatest uh, uh, play ever written, Hamlet's Big Adventure, exclamation point, a prequel. And at the same time, our friend Christopher Moore, the New York Times bestselling novelist, was writing not only a sequel to his bestselling novels, Fool and The Serpent of Venice, but also not a prequel so much, but kind of a remix of Midsummer Night's Dream? Is that a fair way to describe Shakespeare for Squirrels? Oh, absolutely. It's not even a mashup, which I, everybody always wants to use with my stuff. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever it is, wherever you are. I'm Austin Titchener, one-third of the Reduced Shakespeare Company, and you're listening to this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast, number 699, Shakespeare for Squirrels. Christopher Moore's newest comic novel, Shakespeare for Squirrels, comes out next Tuesday, May 12, 2020, and it arrives not a moment too soon. I had the great privilege of reading a draft of it last summer, and it's a comic delight in which Chris's great creation, Pocket of Dog Snogging, who is the fool from Shakespeare's King Lear, is stranded in the Athenian woods amongst the characters from Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream. It's both a breezy entertainment and a tour de force, and when I was fortunate to chat with Chris about it back in January, just a few mere million years ago, I asked him why and how he decided to mix Pocket in with Shakespeare's Lovers, Fairies, and Clowns. The, the thing about Midsummer Night's Dream that intrigued me, uh, bringing Pocket to him, is that, and, and it's one of the reasons I say in the afterward that I think that it's the most produced play, is first it's very, very accessible accessible it's very visual and it also once they get to the fairy wood which is ostensibly a dream you can set it anywhere right. it can be any context and we've seen i i've seen two punk versions one glitter rock version um you know a modern version set in in and i had initially thought that i would set the fairy wood would be in 1940s uh, San Francisco, and you would have this sort of quasi Shakespearean dialect that Pocket speaks um, up against this sort of tough guy Damon Runyon um, Dashiell Hammett sort of dialect. And uh, when I proposed that to my uh, publisher, uh, they came back with, "No, we don't want that. Hmm. Do, do something else now." And and that was the first time I'd ever experienced that. You know, in in 30 years. And I, I had already done uh, quite a bit of reading for the, the 1940s stuff. And so I said, well, I don't know, I could do something that's sort of Maltese Falcony. And my editor said, yeah, do that. Write that as your next book. So I wrote Noir, um, which is a, a set in 1947 San Francisco. And then I returned to, want to wanting to do uh, this pocket story with Midsummer Night's Dream. And, and then I thought, well, I don't have a setting now. You know, I can't do the 1940s thing that I've just done. You know, I used up all the good lines. And, um, and so, I, so I thought, well, I'll just set it in the world that they, you know, sort of this amorphous, non-historical, um, non-historically accurate uh, Greece that, that 
he shipwrecked in. And that's how it came about. And, and, and in doing that, I couldn't, I didn't want to adhere to the text of the play too closely. Um, and I ran into uh, quite a few problems. And one that, you know, in the past, I had done these tragedies. Um, because Merchant of Venice, they can call it a, a comedy, but it's got maybe three funny lines in the entire yeah. uh, play. Um, yeah. You know, it's like measure for measure. It's like, really? That's a comedy? Um, and, and so, but Midsummer Night's Dream arguably can be pretty funny. Yeah. And, uh, and it, it was, it made it more difficult because I wasn't just putting a straight man in, into the play. So I changed it to a murder mystery. Yes. This is the short of it. <laughs> well, and let me, let me address my prejudice, a, a prejudice against um, Midsummer, which is that was absolutely true. But now in the last year, I've seen two amazing productions of it that have renewed my faith in its quality. Um, Chicago Shakespeare did a production a year ago or so, and I just saw the the bridge uh, the bridge dream, the production by the Bridge Theater that was put into into the NT Live in cinemas. Uh, that was, and both of those productions uh, did the play the way I think this play should be done, which is in which the 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 lovers are as funny as the mechanicals. Uh, uh, the fairies are sexy and intriguing and and a little dark and a little um not just mischievous but malevolent and right. uh, and the mechanicals have some soul they're not just funny you know they, they I, I like the productions of midsummer that uh, that embrace the contrasts in the various uh, worlds that they are in and not just go, oh, the lovers are not like a 30s version where the lovers are stupid, the mechanical's funny, and the fairy's ethereal. Right, right. The the MGM version with Mickey Rooney. Yeah, that uh, one. That one. Well, and you, the other thing you've done so lovely is is you've satirized the lovers in a very funny way um, that I'm not sure I want to reveal too much. And you've also explored the fairy world in a really interesting way that where suddenly a character like Cobweb has this enormous backstory. And for any actor who's ever had to play Cobweb, you go, oh, I want to play this version. I want to play Chris Moore's version of Cobweb. And your conception of Oberon, um, oh, I even have the description. I think I wrote the description down somewhere. Um, Oberon looks like the night sky or something. And your conception of his palace is just so evocative to me. And it's it's honestly the most lasting image I have from when I read um, your manuscript. It's uh, it's just such a great exploration of Midsummer, and a very funny comedy with your great character Pocket of Dog Snugging. Well, it was the, the the idea of giving you know Cobweb agency and her and and the other fairies mustard seed and and um, I can remember the, the four of them that are the named fairies that are in the manuscript are in the play, but to give each of them a personality and 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 so forth. This is so I just feel like that's sort of what I do, you know. Oh. I always want to take those those characters that ha that don't have a lot of agency and they sort of seem trod upon in in the plays and 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 give them lines and give them you know their own story and so forth and so um you know cobweb sort of becomes the the driver of the story and and she's very much as you know a, a servant and a, and a 
and and a bit part, you know, placeholder in in the play. Um, if I don't even know if the character has more than one or two lines, but right. um, but it, but that's just what's fun about it to me. I mean, that's it, it, we've all seen or, or presumably seen the play a million times. We know how it goes, even if we don't know the lines. Um, this one was also different in that, you know, I there's some sort of high poetry in the in the first act between uh, Oberon and, and Titania, Titania. I've never been able to say that right. Um, and it, that didn't really translate to what I wanted to do. Right. Um, I, I and and the I have to say, too, that this book was really affected by the world I was writing in as much as it was by the world I was writing about. And, and you know, so the, the mechanicals are sort of, they're not just silly working fellows. They're put upon. They are, they, they are uh, being taken advantage of by the royals and, and, and by society. And, the, and it's the same with the fairies. Um, and, and I sort of split the fairies into dark fairies and, and light fairies by, by making a race of goblins that um, Oberon oversees um, for many reasons. But one was to make it a little bit scarier. Yeah. Um, but but all of those all of the sort of peasant characters, the working class characters, um, I wanted to give them agency and and um, and, you know, Puck more or less becomes uh the you know it's not really a spoiler to say that he's the victim of a murder but he becomes a symbol of of sort of revolution um and you know which is a very heavy thing to say that when you're just doing this ridiculous sex comedy but um but it was what was in my mind it was i i was i felt oppressed you know <laughs> and angry it was really one of the tougher books to write not because I mean, it's one of my shorter books but um it was very tough because i was pissed off every single day yeah and it's hard to write comedy when you're at you know i yeah. mean you write comedy it's hard to write comedy when you're angry at the world yeah for sure and 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 uh and i read it sort of last summer uh when i was recovering from foot surgery the summer of 2019 and mm -hmm. um it was a great, oh my gosh, such a wonderful uh, breath of fresh air. So I admire, uh, so I'm grateful to your pain uh, for struggling your way through writing this. But it, but it felt, uh, it felt both like fantastical and of the moment. And I'm, I'm, I'm a firm believer that the greatest comedy comes from the most grounded uh, reality. And so I'm, it's lovely to hear you explain that because that it makes all sorts of sense based on what I read. I think it's, I think it's just really wonderful. Hi, I'm Scott Simon of NPR News. You're listening to the Reduce Shakespeare Company podcast. Fool. Where can you RSC the RSC? Right now, the best place to see the remote Shakespeare Company is online. We've created a brand new page at our website, ReducedShakespeare.com, where right this second you can watch us perform many of our epic abridgments from the comfort of your own shelter. Right now, you can see The Ring Reduced, where we transform Wagner's 17-hour ring cycle into a brief and palatable 23-minute musical film. Lost Reduced, where we cram the first five seasons of the landmark TV show Lost into 10 minutes 
minutes. Our appearances on two Jeopardy tournaments of champions, plus some brand new videos recorded and shot especially for Right Now by me and Matthew Croak. And you can also see the almost two-hour video Q&A that Reed Martin and I conducted on Facebook two weekends ago. Plus, our reduced reunion of over 50 RSC actors, stage managers, and wardrobe goddesses from at least four different time zones are also on our website, ReducedShakespeare.com. Just click on the Remote Shakespeare Company link. We'll continue to add to this page, so be sure to bookmark it. You can also grab your own copy of Pop-Up Shakespeare, written by me and Reed Martin and beautifully illustrated by Jenny Mazels. As always, the very best way to stay up to date about all of our worldwide performance dates is to sign up for the Reduced Reader, our email newsletter. Go to ReducedShakespeare.com and click on the link to subscribe and check out our touring page for specific box office, venue, and ticket information. And now back to my conversation with Christopher Moore talking about his latest novel, Shakespeare for Squirrels. I love the idea, too, that you said it's a murder mystery um, and that the victim, this is not too much of a spoiler to say that the victim is Puck. And when you go looking for suspects, it turns out everybody's got a motive (laughs) for wanting Puck dead. Right. Right. (laughs) I I stumbled through a a rereading of a number of Agatha Christie uh, books. It's like, okay, she knew what she was doing. And and, um, oh, my God, they didn't hold up. Oh, Oh, interesting. (laughs) Um, and, you know, I, I, a lot of that stuff I, that I read with great fascination when I was in my teens um, and early 20s, I thought, wow, this is not nearly as good as I remember it. But, um, uh, you know, times change. Uh, but I'm glad that you liked it. I, 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 it means a lot to me, especially you, because of, of your knowledge of this. And, and I was so anxious about it because of the, the environment I was creating it in. You know, and and uh, you know, we'll, we'll, if it connects with readers, then we'll know. You know, because as, as we speak, it's it's hasn't been released yet, right? And um, and I just don't know what the public's reaction to it's going to be. But um, well, and I I might be the perfect reader for it. <laughs> Hopefully, I'm there's for- more than one. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's your. We'll blurb the jacket. Austin liked it. <laughs> yeah, oh. come on, you idiots. <laughs> that's pretty. I thought it was pretty good. Well, uh-huh. and can you talk a little bit about the struggles to come up with a title? Um, because uh, I remember when you first told me what the title was going to be, and I went, "Huh." But the more I think about it, and the more I've seen, and the and the cover of the book is beautiful. Uh, oh. It really feels not only a great um, uh, uh, summation of the book, but uh, uh, about what it's about, but also it also describes the book. I mean, it's it, it just feels like yeah. a perfect title. Um, well, it started out I think when I when you and I first talked, and I hadn't written a word on it, I was going to call it "Killing Puck." Yeah, and your reaction was like everyone who I said that to, and they said, "What? It's going to be a Bill O'Reilly book." And uh, I thought, yeah, I can't do that. That's not going to happen. So I went through a number of, of iterations of, of uh, you know, Dead Puck and uh, all this stuff. I, I sort of like Vonnegut says that you should just tell the reader everything that you're doing right up front. Yeah. And let them enjoy the story, you know, not be coy about it. And, and so I didn't mind saying calling it Dead Puck or Killing Puck or anything as if it was a spoiler. Right. Because you were going to know very early on that that was what was going to happen. And it also 
anybody who had seen the play, which is everybody, would say, oh, okay, I know which play this is. Hmm. Um, but as time went forward, and as you know, you've been to my riding hovel in, in, uh, up on the Russian River, there, uh, there's squirrels outside of my door in all daylight hours. There are, as we're speaking right now. Um, <laughs> and, and so it, it, I thought, well, okay, Shakespeare for squirrels. Um, and it sort of harkens back to my first book was called Practical Demon Keeping. And I'm, I'm not ashamed to say I was trying to break into the business. Um, I was a big fan of Douglas Adams and his Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And I thought, well, that sounds like a, a how-to book. And it made me pick it up initially back in the early 80s. And I thought, well, maybe Practical Demon Keeping people go, hmm. What's that? And they'll pick it up and look at it. And that's what you want when you're a new writer is you just need people to pick it up and look at it. Right. So this is sort of a we're coming full circle of, of, in my career to say, oh, yeah, Shakespeare for squirrels. It's obviously a how to book. Um, it's instructional. <laughs> it's a text. It's a te and it, 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 it's a great way of describing um, all of us who do outdoor Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> That's it for this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast. Christopher Moore's new novel, Shakespeare for Squirrels, drops next week, May 12, 2020. But you can pre-order it now at your local independent bookshop or via the usual online conglomerates. Chris also had a fantastic idea for our next conversation, which I'll share with you in just a minute. But meanwhile, send us your favorite fairies backstory via email to feedback at reducedshakespeare.com. You can also find us and interact with other fans on our dedicated podcast page on Facebook at RSC Podcast, on Instagram at Reduced Shakespeare Company, or on my preferred platform on Twitter at Reduced. You can also follow me on Twitter at Austin Titchener, and you can follow Christopher Moore on Twitter at The Author Guy. Thanks, as always, to drooling sidekick Matthew Croak, web services by Ginger Power Limited, music by John Weber and Garage Band. Our random fan shout-out this week goes to Victoria Corbo. No reason, it's just random. Special thanks to Scott Simon from National Public Radio. And finally, thanks very much to you for listening. Please stay safe and stay home. I'm Austin Titchener, 699 to 1097ths of the Reduced Shakespeare Company. And do join us next week for our epic 700th episode, a little preview of which you can hear right now. Thank you so much for continuing to come on to the podcast and talk about your stuff because it feels like we're having a real book club. Oh, yeah. I, well, thank you. And and thank you for having me on, on this podcast. It's just, it's a joy to talk to someone who I, you know, always, you know, because of the work you do, not just, you know, first in performance, which I, I don't even have a, a sense of, but, you know, in rewriting Shakespeare, you know, it's, it's sort of like, oh, this is one of the only other people in the world who knows what it's like to do what I do, you know? And so it's, it's always nice to connect with you about, about these goofy books. We should do this, and I should just ask you all the questions that your listeners want to know because you don't volunteer and because you're always gracious and, and give, uh, you know, give the time to your guest. And, and I should, you know, ask you, we should do, um, we should make a date to do a podcast where I ask you 
all the questions that everyone wants to know about the Reduced Shakespeare Company. That's a great idea. This podcast is a production of the Reduced Shakespeare Company. Reducing expectations since 1981. Go to ReducedShakespeare.com for performance dates, after bios, email newsletters, and so much less. And so much less. And so much less. And so much less. And so much less.